watch out, us old guys are kind of unstable. You know, I might have some kind of an attack. That's what I thought. That's right. Well, uh, okay, there you go. Keep those guys around. Well, let me give uh, you all my standing ovation. Uh, you guys are awesome. You're just yeah. a, I uh, I got involved in this camp back in 1991, and it was uh, uh, back in 1991. I've been involved in youth ministry before. That's actually how I met my wife. Um, and then the opportunity to get back involved with youth seemed like a really cool deal, and uh, was involved for 10 or 12 years. Finally decided to pass it along to the next generation. And guys like David and John have taken the ball and run with it. And uh, I just want to encourage you. I've, I've never seen a better group of young people. Uh, and I've never seen a camp run better than the way these guys have run it. They're I mean, all the way around. Uh, counselors, outstanding. The dedication here. Uh, just a real, real encouragement to me. I want you to know that I will take a piece of you back with me uh, to my congregation. As I was, uh, I sent a blog post back to the church today. It'll probably be posted tomorrow on our, our web blog. And uh, the question I'm posing to the church is, why, why leave camp at camp? That a lot of the stuff we do at camp is really stuff we need to be doing all the time. Uh, we just don't do it very well. And uh, so that's the, I'm throwing it out there, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. We're going to wrap up uh, First Peter. Yesterday was a little fast. We moved a little quick, but we are going to look at, the, I think, most of the key points here in Chapter 5 as we wrap up First Peter. And again, this is a bird's eye view, a bird's eye view of, uh, of First Peter. We're not getting every little detail, but hopefully you got the main points. Uh, why don't we just have a brief word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the tremendous blessing of being here this week and uh, getting uh, to know new people, form new friendships, to consider our uh, relationship with you, Lord, and uh, to uh, take some steps to, to move toward a, a deepened relationship. And Father, we pray that you would help us, again, not to just live out these things uh, for eight days a year, uh, but to take it back with us uh, to our youth group, to our churches, to our congregations that need uh, the vitality uh, that comes from this experience uh, in the pews each week. And so we pray that you'd accomplish that uh, for the glory of uh, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, I've been a pastor in Lincoln for about 19 years now. And uh, one time uh, somebody said, hey, the, uh, the governor, as a prayer thing, would you come and pray with the governor? And uh, I've been to a few of these kind of things in the past. You know what that usually means. There's a big group of people. The governor's trying to get some votes, so he calls in the pastors to kind of butter them up a little bit. And so you're just kind of sitting there, and there's kind of some bland prayers and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, I thought, okay, I'll go once. I'll go once. And uh, so I show up at the, uh, the governor's mansion, and uh, the Secret Service guy lets me in and kind of points me this direction. And it isn't some big room like this with... 50 pastors around it, it's, it's a little dinette table, and there are five of us. 
yikes, what did I get into? And, uh, and so the governor comes in, and I look around at the other pastors. Okay, he's Roman Catholic. I, I know that one is his pastor, but I don't have a big church, and these aren't the pastors of, like, the big church in town. And so it isn't like he's trying to get votes. Uh, he actually really wants us to pray for him. And, uh, and, and uh, the governor sits down and introduces himself, and, and we met for a period of time about once a month just to pray for him. And after he got to know us a little bit, then the governor opened up a little bit, and he said, I've learned early on in my public life that I really need the prayers of God's people, so I really appreciate you guys coming here to pray with me. Blew me away. Totally, I just thought it was all a political game, and he actually wanted people who were serious and wanted to pray with him. Um, that, to me, was a shocking example of humble leadership. Here is a guy who actually really believes that in order for him to do his job, he needs people to serve him. Um, there was, uh, when we get to the story of our fire, it was uh, sh shortly uh, later that afternoon as the fire had erupted uh, that a lot of people gathered. And uh, I noticed after a while one of those people was the mayor. And I thought again, okay, here goes another big political ploy. The mayor is here to score political points and to shake hands with people and to show how much, how sad he feels and that maybe he can get a couple hundred more uh, votes the next time the elections come around. And uh, yes? I didn't say how the fire started. I will tell you later, though. Okay. The uh, little, little tension there. How did the fire start? Um, in fact, I don't think the mayor would have ever introduced himself to me, except, and he wasn't talking to anybody. He was just standing there watching the fire and just kind of grieving with everybody else, just watching. So finally, I went up and introduced myself to him, and uh, he said hello, and, and he just, is all he said. He said, we would feel really bad for you. If there's something the city can do, please let me know. That was it. No big show, no big political games, no big glad-handing and looking for votes. He was just there to sympathize with us and say, let me know how we can help. And it was, that was it. I would never have voted for that guy <laughs> because of his politics. But if I had the chance, I would vote for him now. It made a huge impact on my life. This was a guy who actually cared about people, who loved people, and, and it wasn't in a showy way, it was in a very real way. I want you to think about it tonight as we close this uh, book with chapter 5 about humble service and what it means to, not in a showy way, not in a flashy way, not in a way in which the world is going to really take notice, but in a way that God takes notice, and actually, believe it or not, People do take notice, but in a very different way than we think. What does it mean to be a humble servant? And this is where Peter closes us. Um, he says this, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and the one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. I want
want you to notice something all through Peter's writings again, and now this part again, when the chief shepherd appears. Everything for Peter you do today is in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back again. And when Jesus comes back, we don't want to be embarrassed. Again, it, that's not to say that Jesus' grace hasn't covered all of our sins and that we aren't going to be with the Lord forever. But think about that. Peter's, Peter doesn't want us to be ashamed at that moment. He wants us to be ready. And this is the, the motivation, again, to, a part of the motivation of living a godly life is to consider that Jesus is coming back. The chief shepherd is going to appear. Uh, and by his grace, we're going to receive that crown of glory. This uh, humility that uh, Peter speaks of, is this in the way, by the way? Okay. Uh, he, he mentioned something. He speaks about then this judgment that is coming. Uh, later on in verse 17, he speaks of the uh, judgment uh, coming in the household of God. Well, actually back in chapter 4, verse 17, the judgment begins with the family of God. And, <coughs> and leaders will be judged, again, uh, more, uh, more particularly because of their leadership that they are in, uh, positions that they're in. Uh, I wonder, some people have said that, uh, that when he speaks of the leaders being judged first, if, if Peter may have had in mind a vision from Ezekiel chapter 9. In Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel has this vision of God's judgment coming upon the city. And the angel first goes through, and on the foreheads of everyone who, who uh, is faithful, who loves the Lord, there's a mark put on their forehead. And this is the mark uh, that, that means God's wrath is going to pass you by. But whoever doesn't have the mark... Uh, God's angels go into the town, man, woman, and child, and slay them. And Jerusalem is, in this vision, is just that the bodies are everywhere. But in this vision of Ezekiel, where does the work of the slaying angel begin? It begins in the temple. And in the temple in this vision, that's where the leaders are all gathered, is in the temple. And it begins with the elders, uh, the priests, those who are the leaders. And so I want to warn you about something. You're at a leadership camp, and God is calling you to, to lead. And whatever capacity you're leading, that means that God, again, the, the judgment begins with the leader. Uh, not a judgment that's going to send you to hell, but that, that God is evaluating. He's watching. He wants you to lead well and to take that leadership role seriously. Because if you really are leading, that means that people are following and that means that if people are following and you are erring, you are leading people into error. And so this is something to take very seriously. Um, and, but I want you to notice also the humility of Peter. Here's Peter, the apostle, but this is how he introduces himself. He chooses not to overemphasize his authority, but he just refers to himself as a fellow elder. Isn't that amazing? We, we love titles, we love power and authority, and yet uh, Peter has learned from his Savior that it isn't about the title, it isn't about the power or the authority. Uh, he just is a fellow elder, someone else who is uh, serving the flock. Well, what is the motivation of Christian leadership? Uh, this is from the fire as well. Um, we had a lot of different kinds of pictures, but several of them include the firefighters. Praise God that none of the firefighters were hurt. 
even though the chances, I mean, some of them could have been hurt very, very badly. As you think about guys who do that for a living, again, why do guys run into burning buildings to save people? Isn't that amazing? I mean, they were, they were running in, through the entire building. In fact, uh, when the call came out to evacuate, some of the guys were in the church balcony. Um, and they're, they're scouring the entire building to look for anybody who might be in there so they could save a life. What uh, does Peter say the, the motivation is to be? First part is you need to be willing to serve. He says, not compulsion. We're not making you leave. You don't want to leave. This is so what uh, John's been talking about, calling. Uh, what is God calling you to do? Is God calling you to lead? And uh, so there needs to be a willingness on your part. Uh, not just a willingness, an eagerness. You say, whatever the, the leadership role is, I think this is what God made me to do. I, I want to do this. And uh, he mentions not being greedy for money or having some other motivation. Um, an example to the flock. Uh, this is, again, very important. That people, If you're a leader, that means that people are looking to you. And so you need to take that into account. People are going to follow your example. Mindful of future reward. Uh, the crown of glory that never fades. And we don't talk about reward a lot because we want to, again, we want to be motivated by grace. Uh, but I want you to hear something. If reward played no role in your motivation, then why would the Bible talk about it? There is something about reward. There is something about, uh, about doing what is right and knowing that that's pleasing to God. And in that final day, uh, Paul says that whatever was of Christ and is of value, uh, that is going to uh, remain. Whatever is not of Christ is not of value. That's going to be burned away. Uh, we call that the dross. Jesus came, the scripture says, not to be served, but to serve. So this is the motivation of Christian leadership, is uh, to, uh, to serve. Jesus put it this way, he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on, Jesus is going to wash uh, the uh, uh, disciples' feet. And some churches actually have, do any of your churches have a foot washing service? Um, in in uh, some high church circles, they, they still do this annually. They have a foot washing service to remind ourselves of this kind of uh, servant leadership. Um, of course, Peter doesn't want him to. The one who's writing this letter says, no, Lord, please don't wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, can't be a part of me. And then Peter says, well, then give me a bath. Wash me everywhere. And uh, that's what God's, uh, the grace of Christ does. He washes us everywhere. And he makes us clean and fit for heaven. And that's the work of grace. Well, as we move on here, it's not just the humility of Christian leaders, but the humility of Christian followers. Because following can be just as much of a challenge. Uh, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Um, it's hard to be a follower, to be a good follower. And Peter acknowledges this. Uh, the young men. There's a young man. Kind of a cute young man. Uh, what does it mean to be a... Uh, he addresses it to the young man. Some, some have asked, why young men? Why are they singled out? And, uh, and I don't know for sure. I can only say this. It seems like that uh, being once having been a young man, uh, that for young men, sometimes submission can be very challenging. Uh, it can be a very hard thing for a young man to, uh, to humble himself and to follow uh, the elders as Peter's describing in this text. Uh, but I would say this, whether you're young or old, no matter what the case is, uh, submission can be very hard. It can be a challenge. Um, and so he's got some instructions for us. He says, uh, clothe yourselves with humility. And literally what it means is to tie on or gird on humility. You're gonna, this is going to be your clothes. Your clothing is humility. Um, Paul puts it this way, he says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, just like what Peter says. Colossians 3.12 Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourself with compassion. And so if we're going to be humble people, what is humility? Uh, Ed Clowney, a theologian, put it this way. He said, Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Uh, sometimes we, we get confused about humility. We think humility means putting ourselves down. Oh, I'm nothing. Oh, I'm, I'm just, and we, we deny any comment that comes our way, any compliment that comes our way. Uh, well, what if you really are good at something? Uh, what if you have a talent for something? What if God has given you a gift for something? Is it humility to say, no, I don't have that gift? That's not humility. Uh, however, what pride does is takes the gifts of God and says, well, this is something that I got and I developed and came from me. The, see, re humility recognizes what do you have that God didn't give you? What do you have that God didn't give you? I worked hard. I got it with my own sweat and, and labor and toil. Okay, who gave you a body that works? Who gave you a mind that works? Who has given you the health to do the things that you who has sustained you day by day by day? Who brings the rain? Who sets the sun in the sky? Who gives food for the table? Okay. Now, humility that acknowledges God, that recognizes God's grace, but that doesn't lie about God's gifts or make light of God's gifts. Because God uh, graciously gives us these gifts to serve uh, one another in his name. True humility springs from utter dependence upon God. Uh, do I really believe at every moment that I am utterly and completely dependent upon God? And, and the reality is, no, I don't. And then God takes me to the place where I realize that, and he grows my humility just a little bit more. One of the first times we came to a PYA camp, uh, as we were driving out on the way up, we had uh, troubles with our station wagon. And... Uh, Somehow, got help, limped the car up to the camp, thought that we had made it, 
to uh, and, and could get it fixed that week at the camp. The guy we took the vehicle to get fixed at later on, we heard that his nickname was Jesse James because uh, he was uh, was shady. And uh, so I guess we took it. Well, we thought, you know, we got to take it someplace. He's one of the few guys in town. We're getting ready to leave, and, and my station wagon doesn't work, and I got to get back. And I've got three little kids and a wife, and what am I going to do? And uh, so some guys at the camp graciously began to uh, uh, work on it again and fix it up. They thought they had it all fixed. And so we head down the mountain. By golly, it's working great. Everything's going good. But we were so delayed, we could only get partway home. So we stopped that night, and then we get ready to go uh, the next morning, finish that trip home. We had to get home for Lindsay's birthday. And it's the 4th of July. We're going to somehow get home, and the car breaks down again. <laughs> and there we are in uh, Colorado. Uh, what is it just the other side of Fort Morgan? Um, Sterling. Thank you. <laughs> We uh, we somehow again get the car into Sterling and we look at the gas station and how are we going to get this thing fixed and we want to get home and Lindsay's got a birthday party and all these things are going to happen and and so this couple uh, comes up to us and they say you know we're headed toward Lincoln we've got room in our back seat your wife and your kids they could ride with us we could take them the rest of the way and you could stay with your vehicle and get it fixed and uh, so I'm like yeah okay yeah all right get them home we got a party we got to get them home. And so uh, I, uh, I put my wife and three kids in the back seat of this car with these two people I don't know, and we send them down the road, and I'm in Sterling on the 4th of July trying to get my station wagon fixed. And all of a sudden, it just hits me like a ton of bricks. They're mass murderers. My family is dead. What have I done? I'm an idiot. This is the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I, I mean, I prayed that day harder and more fervently than any other day of my life because there was absolutely nothing I could do. You see, this was 1992. There was no such thing as a cell phone, okay? We didn't have cell phones. There was anything like, how you doing, huh? Keep in touch. Hope things are going well. I was all by myself in Sterling spending the whole day trying to get this <laughs> thing fixed. What's up? Uh, okay, 1993. No. Yes, 1993, because you were a baby. Sorry. I stand corrected. All right. And uh, I think for the first time in my life, I had that sense of utter and complete dependence. I mean, I mean, seriously, I, I thought I sent them off with axe murderers. They're going to be left in the ditch somewhere. Um, and see, God loves to do that. He takes you to the point where there really is nothing you can do. There's only stuff that he can do. And that's where, at that point of utter dependence upon him, if we're going to learn it, we begin to learn humility. And we cry out to God to do the things that he can only do. Um, if God has taken you to a place where you don't have any options, you're out of options, there's, you've done everything you can do, and there's nothing left for you to do, that's a mark of God's grace. He loves you. He loves you enough to teach you utter dependence. And out of that springs humility. Um, 
He quotes, uh, Peter quotes James, and they both, uh, Peter and James, quote the Proverbs, Proverbs 3.34. And uh, they, uh, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then uh, they con contrast the need for humility and the attacks of the devil, which is what we're going to get to here in just a minute. Um, and then the promise comes. And again, this is the promise, another promise of God to underline your Bible. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. He cares for you, casting all your cares upon him, and that he will lift you up in due time. Um, and so, uh, actively trusting God, he humbles, he advocates, he sets the seasons, he cares. And so, uh, humility will teach us to trust the Lord. But there's a problem, uh, and that is, uh, and I want you to think about that for blog time, maybe, what would it look like to actually cast your cares on him? And uh, that's just kind of an idea. Casting your cares, it's kind of a vague idea. What would that really look like for you? your situation. Well, he goes on then to talk about our adversary. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like, around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Um, we don't take the devil seriously. That's not a statement of, of guess, that's a statement of fact. In America, we do not take the Lord seriously. And this is one of the serpent's greatest tools, is ignorance and disbelief. Um, there are two, uh, this is by the way on your paper here from C.S. Lewis. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and un unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, in our part of the world, our problem is, is that we don't really believe in the seriousness of the devil. And so Peter reminds us, yes, you do have an enemy out there uh, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Um, the year was 1995, and I know that was the year. Um, and we were actually on a picture safari in Kenya. And uh, there was a place at night that we went uh, on a bluff that was surrounded by big fences, barbed wire, and guards with guns, which seemed like a little bit excessive. Until late at night, you heard the animals. And the lions are actually literally on the prowl. And if there wasn't somebody actually with a very big gun walking the perimeter of that, uh, of that compound, you would not feel safe at night. Not at all. This is the devil. This is our adversary. And, and when we think about facing the devil, his first advice is be self-controlled. Uh, be self-controlled. Uh, in the Bible, we are to be self-controlled or spirit-controlled, but not controlled by other influences. Uh, it says to be sober. This is a serious enemy. Be on the alert. Watch. Keep watch. Uh, be on your guard, uh, Peter says. And by the way, this, this word phrase, keep watch, remember Jesus, just before he's going to be crucified, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
and he goes to pray, and then he says to the disciples over here, he says, okay, please pray and keep watch. You're my sentries. I'm calling you to pray for me right now and to keep watch. And then Jesus is discouraged because he comes back and they, they fall asleep. They don't take seriously. They don't understand the importance of this keeping watch for the enemy. Um, well, you keep watch because your enemy is very serious and very dangerous. Uh, many names for the enemy in the Bible. The devil, Satan, Lucifer. Uh, many images in the Bible. A lion, a serpent, a dragon. Uh, and many descriptions. Or, uh, a liar, an accuser, a tempter. Um, in fact, that last one, uh, uh, accuser, tempter. One of the greatest tools uh, that the devil has at his disposal is the truth. When the devil really wants to get you, he tells you the truth about yourself. And here's the twist. You see, it, it kind of feels at first like the work of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin. But the Spirit's job is also to assure you of the, gospel, the truth of the gospel and assure you of Christ's grace. And so, uh, again, when you feel that conviction, you're to run to Christ. When you run to Christ, but you still feel that ache and that pain and that concern about whether or not you're forgiven, I want you to understand at that moment that is not the work of the Spirit. That is the work of the devil. The devil is the accuser. Uh, the devil uses your sin to convince you that you're really past God's grace. That God's grace isn't good enough for you. It isn't big enough for you. You're just too far gone. And this is one of the great tools of the devil. Uh, and that's why, again, when you sense that, uh, that burden of sin, again, run to Jesus. Uh, the Spirit's uh, work is to assure you of the truth of the gospel and to bring peace. And when you do not sense that peace, I want you to understand Again, that, that accusation is the work of the devil. Um, when you face uh, someone like uh, this, this adversary, you need to have an advocate. Um, and our advocate, uh, he says, The God of, of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, he gets back to that theme, yes, this life, uh, you're a pilgrim, going to suffer. There are going to be hardships. After you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Our advocate, he says, I will make you strong. Uh, he's really built, eh? That's, uh, that's Samson. <laughs> There it is, right there. I just did one of these. Um, what did Samson look like? Okay, we know he's a man. He had very long hair. Maybe, maybe Samson looked like that. Yeah. We don't know, do we? The Bible doesn't say. See, but you think when you hear Samson, he's a big, strong guy, and he's like, you know, uh, uh, whatever. He's Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's 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 really. He really is built, right? But I want you to understand something. Our strength, okay, our strength comes from the Lord. 
It does not come. It comes from the power. It was when the power of the Spirit came upon Samson that he did amazing things. Samson's strength was not in his muscles. His strength was in the power of the Lord. I want you to think about that. As you stand up to the adversary, and then Christ advocates for you, the promise is that God will make you strong. He, he can make you firm. He can make you steadfast. I, when we begin to rely upon our own strength, uh, this is when we are doomed to fail. And uh, so we need to lean upon Christ and to believe the promises of the gospel. Um, but notice again, after you suffer a little while, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult. There are going to be hard times. He writes at the end here about Babylon, which is a code word for Rome. And then he says at the very end here, uh, that it tells us to greet one another with a kiss of love. And so right now what I'd like us all to do is to stand up and... Now some of you are actually kind of excited about that. See, some of you, some of you were starting to get pretty excited. All right, come on. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. Oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and and the rest of you are like, no way, no way. The uh, I was at a conference once where uh, at our church, where a, a a teacher brought about brought up that verse, and he said, you know, the Bible says we're to greet each other with a kiss of love. What's so hard about that? It's no big deal. And he walked up to one of the elderly members of the church. Yes. Wait, on the lips? No. Oh. <laughs> no, like they, like they do in Europe, you know, one oh. cheek and then the other cheek. And he did the, he did the kind of the European kiss thing. And, uh, and then he stood back and he said, see, that's no big deal. That's what the Bible is talking about for us to just give a warm greeting to it. And the older guy just kind of stiffened up, <laughs> turned about eight shades of red. <laughs> he was an old Dutchman. And I'm telling you what, it was a big deal. Um, I have a slightly different interpretation. Uh, in Peter's culture, that's the way you express love and care to each other. How typically do we express love and care to each other in this culture? Uh, a lot of times, usually it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hug, it's a handshake, it's a half a hug. It's something along those lines. Uh, a nice love pat. Okay, but don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. Uh, greetings are actually very important. And greetings are given a lot of attention in the Bible. Uh, in fact, at the beginning of letters, at the end of letters, greetings are very important. And so to communicate and to greet and express care and warmth, to tell people, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, you can make a huge difference in your church, excuse me, if you, are, if you practice that kind of care and, con and concern for people. I'm telling you what, seriously, if you want to blow away your congregation, now maybe some of you are this way already a lot, and and you don't count. But for the rest of you, you want to blow away your congregation. You come up to the adults in your congregation and say, uh, it's great to see you this Sunday. And uh, you give them a good handshake, or if you know them well enough, give them a little hug, and just give them a smile and say, it's great to see you today. I'll guarantee you, you will stir the church. Amen. Right? Yeah. Do you believe it? Yeah. Can I get an amen yeah. on that? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. All right. Okay. 
Well, okay, we're getting we're getting to the end of the story here. Um, one more lesson from the fire, and with this I close. Um, when they uh, took down the building, I may have mentioned this before, but there was a time capsule that was in the cornerstone of the building, and uh, that's the time capsule. And this was put in there in 1927. It was soldered uh, shut, and then uh, we decided that we ought to uh, have a special uh, you know, party in the park to open up the time capsule. And so we, uh, we cut it open all except the one little part, and the construction guy who had found it, we asked him if he would open it for us. And so we gathered in the park to kind of see uh, about this, uh, about the, uh, uh, the time capsule. Um, there was a, we all had our I Am Zion Church shirts on to remind ourselves that the building is not the church, but we are the church. So we had a, oh, it's one of the families in the church there. And uh, we began to open the time capsule. Now, keep in mind, uh, when you open a time capsule, that that means that the building is not there anymore, or that something happened to the building, because they're embedded into the building. So the only way that this thing is going to be open is if something bad happens. And uh, the, the founders of the church understood that. And so uh, something bad did happen. And... Uh, so we opened it up, and uh, there was a bunch of uh, a lot of different paperwork in there. Now, one of the problems was that uh, the, uh, of course, it was a German church, and they spoke German and wrote German, and so we knew that whatever was in there was going to be in German. And sure enough, it was. It was all in German. Uh, I want you to think about this. If you um, if you were to make a time capsule and you knew that the only terms in which that time capsule would be opened is if something bad happened. And this is going to be opened by people who knows how many years. They didn't know. It would happen to be 80 years after the fact, but it could have been 100 or 200 or 300. What would you want to say to those people? What would you want them to know about you? What would you hope for about them? See, the reality is, I mean, that's, that's the way we're supposed to live our lives each and every day, realizing that there is a legacy that we are building today for a generation in the future that we don't even know. What kind of a legacy are we leaving? Well, we opened it up and we found a few things. Uh, we found the bulletin of when the church was dedicated, uh, when the cornerstone was dedicated. We found a newspaper article, it was again back from 1927, that talked about the structure that was about to be built. Very interesting. Uh, and then we finally found the letter. Uh, there has to always be a letter. It isn't just stuff, but it's the story. It's the story. And we had to wait a while because we had to get it translated. And about two weeks later, the translators came back and we were able to read through exactly what their message was for us. And I can only say that if I leave a cornerstone someday, I, I hope it's as well put as the one that they had there. There's something about each generation that thinks that previous generations just really didn't get it, didn't understand, they weren't as savvy, they didn't know their Bibles as well, or maybe the gospel was fuzzy for them. 
Uh, this is how they closed their letter to us. Zion Congregation was founded in Lincoln, Nebraska on January 17, 1900. The congregation had to enlarge the house of God after seven years, that is in 1907, because the congregation grew through the grace of God. Hence it followed that they may build a new house for God and the cornerstone was placed on July 17, 1927. And these are the closing words. Since the beginning, the congregation has found peace in Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. As fathers and brothers in Christ, we wish for our descendants that they will follow Christ's calling and the teachings of Jesus. His blood cleanses us from all sins. So we meet in eternal Zion. So we meet in eternal Zion. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may this be our prayer that we might find our peace only in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. And that as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, that we would wish for our descendants that they would follow Christ's calling and the teachings of Jesus and know deeply in their souls that it is the blood of Jesus alone that cleanses us from all sins. And one day we will be together and meet the eternal Zion. going uh, this week, and I was grateful that David had an opportunity to share his story at the beginning. <laughs> David shared some of his story at the beginning of how God used this, uh, this camp, YXL, in his life to... Um, grow him in his walk with the Lord, and draw him closer to himself, and um, and some of you know a bit of my story, a bit of my story is, uh, I, I, I prayed with my dad when I was really young, age seven, but the next, from age seven, the kind of the next major monumental point that I look back and say that was another, uh, that's where God really drew me again himself and my conversion story uh, was when I was about 15. Okay, I was sitting in a chair much like you. We were in Colorado um, and the speaker was Stu Kearns. So you have been listening to somebody who's made a big impact on you. And uh, I'm grateful for him. Um, 